As you're being seated this morning, would you please grab your copy of God's Word, whatever format you have it, and turn to the book of Zechariah. So if you're in the New Testament, Matthew, if you just go back two books to the left, you'll find yourself there in one of the minor prophets, Zechariah. We're going to be in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. In anticipation of Christmas, the season of Advent, where we remember this merciful giving of our Savior's miraculous birth and entrance into this world, we're looking at how the Old Testament was divinely designed and authored by God as a way of preparing the way for the Lord and pointing to the coming of the Savior. So when someone like Simeon was in the temple waiting for Jesus, how did Simeon have a knowledge that Christ was coming? What was he waiting for? And the Old Testament points that way. And so one of the ways the Old Testament does that is by giving us promises that only Christ comes and keeps. And so we looked at the first promise ever given in Scripture, Genesis 3.15, the promise that a seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. Jesus fulfills that. Well, another way the Old Testament prepares the way for Jesus is by giving us pictures of the gospel, pictures of the work that Christ alone came to accomplish. And so we're going to look at one of those pictures of the gospel in Zechariah chapter so I, there's, there's many prophecies and promises and ways we could look at how the Old Testament prepares for Christ, but I want to pick some maybe more overlooked ones, more, more obscure ones that you haven't seen to show that the Old Testament in its entirety, not just in specific parts, points us to Jesus. So Zechariah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord showed me, Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. As for the reading of God's word, let's pray. Lord, we ask as we come to sit beneath your word this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive so that the word that is sown in our hearts would bear fruits of righteousness in our lives and that Christ would become even more glorious in our eyes so that we would want to live and honor and follow after him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most clever advertising campaigns, in in my humble opinion, was the, or maybe it still is going on, the Southwest Airlines Want to Get Away commercials. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but one in particular stood out to me because it illustrates very well one of the questions that the Old Testament asks and demands an answer to. And the question is, who will hide us from our sin and shame and guilt? Who will be a covering 
for all the cover-ups that we try to give for ourselves but do not sufficiently cover what we're trying to hide from. Well, this commercial in particular I'm thinking out, thinking of is in this Southwest commercial, there's a lady who's sitting at her cubicle and she looks obviously bored. She's not enjoying her job. She's very discouraged, wants, wants a new job probably. Well, suddenly an email notification pops up on her computer and it says, um, looking for a new exciting job. So she perks up, gets excited, and she clicks on the email. Well, as it turns out, the email is a computer virus in disguise. So starting with her computer and every subsequent computer in the whole office, this computer virus spreads and up pops this audible message announcing, congratulations, you need to find a new job. <laughs> and then we see her slinking and uh, sh- you know, getting slow in her chair, hiding beneath her cubicle because she does not want to be seen by her coworkers or her bosses. And then the punchline pops up want to get away. And then you can buy a Southwest Airline tickets for $99 and uh, go through that if you want to. And the reason I like that commercial is because it very effectively taps into a human reaction and a human response that we have in the wake of wrongdoing. In the wake of wrongdoing, there's this feeling of embarrassment and, and guilt and shame that we instinctively respond to by wanting to get away, wanting to run and hide for cover not wanting to be seen by others, not not wanting others to know what we've done and how we feel about what we've done. And we see this immediately in the Garden of Eden, in the aftermath of Adam and Eve's sin, which we looked at a little bit last week. They take from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in one sense, the serpent was right. They do, by eating that, have a knowledge of good and evil. They know that God is wholly good, and they have committed an act of holy evil, and they want to run and hide and cover up what they've done. They have this instinctive response that we even recognize because in our own foolishness, we attempt the same things as them. We can look at them from our kind of vantage point and think, you know, how silly of them to think that they could cover themselves from the Lord with fig leaves and they could hide from him behind one of the trees when he's present everywhere and sees all things. And yet we have the same cover-up instincts in our own lives. Kids, think about when you sneak out of your room, when your parents are asleep, to carefully look at the presence under the tree. And and maybe you're really good, like I was as a kid, where you can get the tape without peeling away some of the wrapping paper. And you can peek and you can see, oh, it's, it's Legos or it's a video game or something. And then you can carefully replace the tape to see as if no one saw it. And then you set it down, you go back to your room, and no one's the wiser. What are you staging? You are staging a cover up. You're trying to hide your sin, and yet they know. This is one of the wonderful things about having been a kid and having kids is like, I know, I know all the tricks of the trade. Or the person who tries to put on a good public persona, to look shiny, clean, pristine on the outside, everything's good, everything's fine, in an attempt to hide what is really going on in private or what they're really like in private. That is another attempted cover-up. That is fig leaves and hiding. Or whenever we make excuses for our sharp reactions or our sinful responses. We say, I'm just tired, or I haven't had my coffee yet, or you drive me crazy. That excuse making is an attempted cover-up. It's a way what we're trying to hide. I remember uh, Mike Bruce told this wonderful story that illustrates this. He said, a kid was about to be disciplined by his dad, and the kid had a serious question. He said, Dad, how come when I get angry, it's because I'm sinning, but when you get angry, it's because you're tired? It doesn't make any sense to me, Dad. But it's because parents are just more clever at covering things up, okay? All of our clever attempts at covering up the parts of our life, our past, or our character, that we don't want others to see, 
is itself an acknowledgement that we know there are standards to live up to that we are not meeting, that there is a law that we're to keep that we're not keeping. And we know that there's stains on our record and there's guilt in our hearts. We want it covered up and we want to hide it any way that we can. And all of our insufficient attempts of creating man-made cover-ups are also demonstrating one of our greatest needs that Jesus came to meet. We need someone who can perfectly and permanently remove the stains on our record and cover them over with righteousness. That is one of the needs we have that Christ comes to meet. And this is where the gospel picture of Zechariah 3 comes in because it portrays one of the greatest gifts that is given to us in the gospel. What is that gift? Well, Jesus came to give us the gift of his perfect obedience so that an exchange could take place, so that he could exchange our sin-stained garments for his pure garments of righteousness, that he would wear ours so that we could wear his. Now let's see how Zechariah pictures this because it's not just in the New Testament that this comes to play. This is pictured, pointed to, and prepared for all the way back in the Old Testament, already in the days of Zechariah. So setting the context for Zechariah, where, where are we on the biblical timeline of redemptive history? Well, Zechariah is a prophet who is ministering in the days when Israel is being brought out of exile in Babylon back to their homeland. So they were in their homeland after Egypt and the Exodus, and they didn't do so well there. They, they, they lived faithlessly. They turned to all the ways of the other gods. They forgot the Lord, their God, and all the blessings he gave them. And so the Lord says, now you're getting sent out of the land. So they go to Babylon. Uh, think of Daniel and uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and all that went on there. Well, then the Lord says, but I will turn and in my judgment, remember mercy and I will show mercy to you and I will bring you back to your own land. Well, Zechariah is a prophet who gets to be in those days when it's home sweet home again. And he gets to minister to them during that time. So a great geographical, physical restoration is taking place, but there's still an issue. Because you can take the people physically out of Babylon, but it's a whole other thing to take the spiritual Babylon out of the people. Because they still have, in their activity, in how they relate to the Lord, they still have the same characteristics, the same faithfulness that their forefathers demonstrated when they went into exile in the first place. So the question is, are we going to go into exile again? Or is something else going to happen? Well, Zechariah prophesies that God is going to do an even greater work than physical restoration. He is going to bring about a great work of redemption in the hearts of his people. He's not just gonna change their geographic location. He is gonna change their spiritual state by a work of grace. So Zechariah 3 is where that happens. And in Zechariah 3, we are transported as spectators through the vision that Zechariah has into the cosmic courtroom of heaven where a trial is underway. So look with me at verse one of Zechariah chapter three. This is Zechariah prophesying. Then the Lord showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So Joshua the high priest is on trial, but he's not on trial just as an individual representing himself. The high priest in Israel, you have to understand, always stood as a representative for the whole of God's people. Think about whenever the high priest was in his official capacity, he was wearing these special garments and on his garments, on his shoulders and on his chest, he had all the stones of the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed on him. Why is that? Because he always acted on behalf of the people. He always acted as a representative of the people. 
So one way to think of the difference between priest and a prophet is a prophet was to represent God to the people by speaking for God to the people. A priest represented God to the people by acting on behalf of the people in front of the Lord. Well, the high priest who represents the people is on trial. And Satan is residing as a prosecuting attorney who is there to present his case of accusation against the high priest and the people. And the angel of the Lord is standing in as a defense attorney, the advocate for the people. So Satan opens the case in verse one by accusing Joshua before God, the judge. Now the text doesn't tell us directly what accusation Satan levels against Joshua and the people. But look at verse three, because we find a clue of what he might have said. So Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Now that does not mean that the accusation was that Joshua was not very good at laundry because this is a spiritual vision here. These filthy garments represent what Isaiah 64, 6 says. Our garments are as filthy rags. All of our righteousness as as filthy rags. That the stain on Joshua's clothing represents the stain of sin on the people's record. The guilt that resides on their heart that they cannot scour away through their obedience, through their works, through all their rituals that they have. And so what Satan is pointing out is that the people are unclean. They're filthy in faithfulness. They are impure in their unrighteousness. And perhaps Satan even reminded God that this is actually a charge against him because Leviticus 21.6 said this about the priest. The Lord demands that the priest shall be holy to the Lord and not profane his name. So there was a special requirement for the priest that clearly Joshua is not living up to. So perhaps Satan is saying, look at your high priest. Look, look at your standards. How can you say that you're a God of truthfulness and faithfulness when things are not lining up? So Satan is doing what he does best, what he loves to do best. He loves to accuse. In Job, you see that in the opening of the book of Job. Revelation 12.10 says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses them day and night before the Lord. He loves to do two things. He loves to deny God before men and cast doubt on God before men, and he loves to condemn men before God. He loves to do both those things. He loves to sow the seeds of condemnation and water them in the hearts of God's people. So his accusation begs the question, how will this hold up in the cosmic court of heaven? And a God who's unflexing and unflinching in his justice, how will this hold up? It seems that he has an open and shut case. Is there any defense for the people? We'll jump down to verse two. God does not let these accusations go unhindered. He speaks right away. He will have order in his court. He says in verse two, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. So God's rebuke is powerful because the rest of the passage, you do not hear Satan speak one more time. His accusing mouth is shut and silenced because the Lord resides as sovereign in his courtroom and Satan holds no sway there. So he may prowl, like a roaring lion, but anytime the Lord speaks, and you see this in Jesus' public ministry, anytime he speaks with a word of authority, that prowling lion becomes a silent kitten who does the Lord's bidding. So after this rebuke, God reminds Satan that there is, as C.S. Lewis uses in the line which in the wardrobe, a deeper magic that Satan knows nothing about. He knows strict justice, but he does not know the deeper magic of God's grace where he can be just and the justifier by his love. So he says, verse two, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? 
This is how the Lord silences Satan's accusations. Now, how, how do they silence Satan's accusations? Well, when God says that phrase, I've chosen Israel and I plucked them from the fire, they're meant to recall the fact that the only reason God's people stand before the Lord is not because of their merit, not because of something in them, but because of his grace, because of his love. When Israel's about to go into the land, Moses is preparing them and he knows they're gonna become puffed up with pride. He says, know this, the Lord did not choose you because we were greater in number than others, not because you had a wonderful army, not because of anything in you. The Lord loved you because he loved you. It's grace that is operating in the lives of God's people. God is rebuking Satan and reminding him that Israel does not stand on their own merit. They stand on his grace. God chose and redeemed them because of his love. And Satan has forgotten this deeper magic. Well, after God silences Satan with this rebuke, the angel of the Lord steps in as the defense attorney and the heavenly advocate who offers a defense for the people. So the high priest does not excuse Joshua's filthy garments. He doesn't say, they're, they're not really dirty. In fact, you know, there's, there's some clean spots. No, what he does is he commands that the filthy garments be removed. And he says, behold, your iniquity has been taken away from you. And then he goes one step further and he commands that clean, pure, undefiled, righteous vestments be put on the high priest. And so what is the significance of this action? Well, in declaring that the garments have been removed, he is signifying that, yes, although he does stand in himself condemned, I will do a work so that he is declared not guilty, no condemnation in me. And then by placing the pure garments of him, he is saying that he will stand clothed in a righteousness, not his own, but that is credited to his account. So there's going to be removal and a replacement, a removal and a covering for Joshua. And the people. And that's how the vision ends in verse 5. The question it leaves us with is when will this happen? Who, who's going to perform this? And how will this be fulfilled? Well, we don't have to look long because we start to get some answers in the second half of Zechariah 3 where the vision is interpreted. Look at verse 8 with me. The Lord speaks and interprets what just happened. He says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before me. For they are men who are a sign. This is why we know this is a gospel picture. The Lord says definitively, what you've just seen here is a drama of redemption acted out on the stage of a prophet's vision. It's a sign because behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. So what's just been portrayed is a picture of what my servant, the branch, is going to come and do. So who is this servant, the branch? Well, without turning there, listen carefully to two other texts in the Bible that signal who this is and what he's going to do. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Oddly enough, Jeremiah was a prophet who stood on the precipice of Israel going into exile. Zechariah is the one who stands the precipice on them coming back from exile. And they both speak about my servant, the branch. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. So he's not just my servant, the branch, but a righteous branch. He shall reign as king. He shall deal wisely. He shall execute justice and enact righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So we often at Christmas time, especially think about the significance of the names given to Jesus. 
And there are many names in the early gospel accounts, and they're wonderful. But not all of the names that he was named were given there. Some of them are, are left for us to know in the Old Testament. One of those names is that the Lord is our righteousness. That was the name which that child would be called. Because he was going to come, and as Jeremiah points out, he is going to be the one who walks in wisdom who executes justice, who upholds righteousness in the land so that he would be called, not just the Lord is righteous, but even more significantly, the Lord is our righteousness. There's gonna be something about what he does being applied to us and who we are. Well, one more place, Isaiah 61.10. Prophet Isaiah envisions a day when God's people will be able to sing a song with these lyrics in it. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with robes of righteousness. So what Zechariah and Jeremiah and Isaiah, putting that together, what that depicts for us is that every one of these descriptions of my servant, the branch, this gospel picture in Zechariah and how it's unfolded throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it all finds its fulfillment in the person and work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we think of Jesus who came to take on flesh and dwell among us, one of the purposes of his coming was so that he could be our righteousness, so that he could faithfully wear and bear that name, the Lord is our righteousness, so that through his perfect obedience, he could weave together the garments of salvation that he would then place on us to cover our sin and shame. And when the Apostle Paul speaks of the birth of Christ in Galatians 4.4, he says this about Jesus' birth. When the fullness of time had come, that is, when all of God's promises and pictures and prophecies had reached their pinnacle, when that time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why was Jesus born under the law? What does Paul mean by that phrase? Well, he means that Jesus came to take on that name, the Lord is our righteousness, by living under all the obligations of the law that we were to live under, but couldn't, to keep all the demands that the law gives, but we couldn't keep, to do all the things the law says not to do, but we keep doing in our place. He means that Jesus came to be our righteousness by living a life that we were required to live, but failed to live. Now, here's a helpful question to ponder that I think helps expand and inflate and grow our view of how amazing the work of Christ is. At what point during Jesus' earthly life did he start acting as our substitute? At what point during Jesus' earthly life did he start acting in our place, taking our place? I'll give you, I'll start with what the answers are now. We'll start eliminating some options. The answer is not, once he was nailed to the cross. That's not when he started taking our place. It was much sooner than that. It was not when he was arrested and placed on trial and charged with guilt that he had not committed. It was much sooner than that. It wasn't even at age 30 when he began his public ministry. That's not when he started taking our place. It was even much sooner than that. Jesus started acting as our substitute in our place the very same moment he took on flesh and dwelt among us. That was the exact moment that he started acting as our substitute. You see, Jesus came not only to die in our place, he came to live in our place. 
By his death in our place, he removes every stain of sin that is on our garments. But by his perfect life, he provides for us robes of righteousness by which he can cover us and declare us clean and pure and righteous. And so when Jesus is born and born of the son of Mary, he's born in this unique and special way so that he could be holy as God is holy. The demand that we were given, he comes to fulfill. And so this calling of Jesus to be righteous is even hinted at in the miraculous and unique way that he's born. If you turn with me to the opening of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter one, just flipping over a couple books in your Bible, Luke chapter one, when the announcement of the birth is given to the baby Jesus, Mary is told that your son is going to have these incredible names because he's going to be this very unique and special person. And so she asks a very understandable question, given her circumstance and situation and setting. She asks in Luke 1.34, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. He's going to be born in this special way because he has a special name and a special calling. He is going to be holy as the Lord is holy. So in other words, the reason this birth is so unique and so miraculous is because it's not going to be an ordinary birth of an ordinary son. This is going to be a miracle, the likes of which no one has seen since the time when God spoke something out of nothing. When God brought creation into existence out of nothing, now he comes at the dawn of a new creation to, as it were, speak life into a womb where there is nothing to bring about the one who's gonna stand as head over a whole new creation. You see, to be our righteousness, Jesus had to have two qualifications that he met. He had to be like us in every respect, according to our human nature, yet without sin. So he's born of Mary, born of woman, so that he could take on a human nature like ours, so that he could take our place. But he's born of the Virgin Mary, by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, so that he would not take on a sinful nature like ours. Everyone who is born according to ordinary measures, and I have empirical evidence of this at my house if you want to come and see, is born with a sin nature where they do not have to be taught how to sin. They just do it naturally. Because, sadly enough, they have our genetics and including our sinful nature. But Jesus is born in this unique way so he can be like us in every respect, yet without sin. So he's truly the new and better Adam, who is not born according to the old fallen creation, but born according to a new and redeemed creation. Well, we see Jesus' obedience very early. And as I turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. In all the gospel accounts, there's only one time in Jesus' life that's recorded between his birth and his public ministry when he's baptized by John. And that's in Luke chapter 2, 41 to 52. And it's an illustration of how Jesus is our righteousness. So look at verses 41. Start there with me. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year, the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So this sounds like a normal occurrence of, of any parent who has multiple children. Can't find their kid. 
And so they're searching for him, looking for him. Where, where did he go? He was, we're, we're leaving. He was supposed to be with us. He's not there. Well, go to verse 46. Here's what happened. After three days. So this is, this is a missing persons. After three days, they find Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He has wisdom and he has prudence to ask good questions. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? This is not Jesus talking back to his parents. This is Jesus saying, hey, you've raised me since age 12. You told me what the angel said. You've given me the names that I was to be given. You told me all these things. So we're in Jerusalem. So I wanted to be in my father's house. What Luke is presenting here is Jesus' perfect obedience in relation to his heavenly father, that zeal for the Lord's house consumes him. He embodies, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. He meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. It is in his mind and in his heart, and he knows it even better than the religious leaders know it. He is loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, even as a 12-year-old son. But there's more. Look at verses 50 and 51 with me. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in his heart. So not only is he perfectly obedient in relation to his heavenly father, but Luke wants us to know he was perfectly obedient all the time in every way to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Now, we rightly marvel and are mystified by the miracle of the virgin birth. But having been a 12-year-old son and having almost a 12-year-old son, I marvel at the miracle that this 12-year-old boy obeyed his parents all the time in every single way, never once slipping in regards to the fifth commandment. And even more than that, this 12-year-old son who is obeying his mom and dad is the maker of man, made man, who is the one who is responsible for creating them. They were created through him and for him, and in him all things hold together, and he sustains them by the word of his power in some mysterious way, even as he's their 12-year-old son who is submitting to them in everything they ask him to do. This is a marvel. And the Lord's righteousness continues throughout his earthly life. The Lord is our righteousness. In Luke 4, when he's tempted by the serpent in the wilderness, And he says, I will live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, even though I'm fasting for 40 days and there's no food in sight. He does not put the Lord, his God, to the test. He will not budge one inch on the first commandment. He said, I will worship the Lord my God and serve him only. And the Lord is our righteousness in his earthly ministry when we see his infinite patience exercised toward his slow-to-believe disciples, in his abundant compassion towards the crowds who are like sheep without a shepherd, and in his unflinching courage to stand up to all the charges that the hypocritical religious leaders gave against him, he withstood every test that they had, never backing down one time. And then we see his righteousness in silently submitting to being arrested and put on trial, which was a mockery of justice. And when he's on trial, it's no coincidence that as charges and accusations are being thrown against him because they want nothing more than to see him dead, Pilate, who's in charge of the court, looks at Jesus two times and says to the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. 
The only true words spoken of Jesus during that public trial were those words from Pilate. He, he had no clue what he was saying, but he looks at Jesus and as if he's examining him and he says, his robes are clean. His garments are unstained from sin. There is no guilt in this man. He is spotless, unblemished, and blameless. And yet he was charged. Why? Because the Lord, our righteousness, was being falsely condemned in an earthly court so that you and I could be acquitted in a heavenly court. Jesus was enduring this earthly trial of injustice so that that trial we just looked at in Zechariah 3 could come to pass and be fulfilled in you and my life, in your and my life. All of Jesus' life, from the moment he took on flesh to the moment he stands nailed to the cross, he was weaving together through his righteousness the perfect spotless garments of salvation by his obedience so that he could take our rags and place on us his pure garments. The Lord is our righteousness so that the stain of sin and guilt and all of its accompanying embarrassment and shame could be removed and could be replaced with what he himself has won for us by his life. So what's the significance of this for us? In what ways is Jesus our righteousness a gift that keeps on giving. Well, since the Lord is our righteousness, we have the ultimate defense to silence the accusations of the enemy when they come against us. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. If I could have you memorize just one hymn, and it was a requirement for you, it would be memorize the words of before the throne of God above. It is such a gift. Every time Satan reminds us of the debt of our sin, we have the defense that since the Lord is our righteousness, Christ has paid for all our debt in full. Every time the enemy reminds us of how much we've done wrong or how little we've done right, we have the defense that since the Lord is our righteousness, he has done all things perfectly well. And though we are faithless, he was perfectly faithful on our behalf. Also, since the Lord is our righteousness, we can rest securely in the love of our heavenly Father. Oh, how easily we can slip into a performance-based mindset in our relationship with God, right? I had a good week, had a bad week. And the Lord loves me, the Lord loves me not. I had a good week, I read my Bible, I waited patiently in line at the DMV, I tipped generously to the server who didn't deserve it, the Father loves me. But then the inverse happens on a bad week. I didn't read my Bible. I used the Lord's name multiple times on the golf course, and it wasn't because I was praying. My heart was an overflowing fountain of selfishness and self-righteousness toward others. The Father loves me not. In a performance-based mindset, our relationship with God feels like a ping-pong ball going back and forth. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. It is restless and exhausting. If that has ever described you, then you need to hear this loud and clear. If you are in Christ, clothed in his garments of salvation, then there is nothing you can do to make the Father love you more 
and there is nothing you can do to make the Father love you less. You are perfectly loved by the Father because of the perfect obedience of the Son. All the love that the Father has for his perfect Son is yours because Jesus is your righteousness. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus because he is our righteousness. Finally, since Jesus is our righteousness, we have the true and proper motivation for obedience. Christians love not so that God will love them, but because he first loved us. We forgive others, not so that we will be forgiven, but because God in Christ has already forgiven us. We seek to keep God's commands, not so that we can earn a righteousness, but because we have already received Christ's righteousness. Christians obey not for righteousness, but from the righteousness they already have in Christ. Gratitude for grace is the only proper motivation for the Christian life. Fear is not the proper motivation. Guilt is not the proper motivation. Trying to earn and merit something is not the proper motivation. It is gratitude for grace. John Bunyan, famous author of Pilgrim's Progress, a book that everyone should read, was once accused during his ministry of overemphasizing that one's righteousness is not found in what they do, but in what Christ has done. So his opponent said to him, if you keep saying that, if you keep emphasizing that, people will do whatever they want. To which he wisely replied, no. If we keep assuring people that Christ is their righteousness, they'll do whatever he wants. So let me overemphasize this point one more time. Jesus came to give us the gift of his perfect obedience so that he could exchange our sin-stained garments for his pure garments of righteousness. Let's pray.